Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Chris Beato, CEO of Flat River Minerals, including its subsidiaries Rocking WW Minerals, Flat River Resources, Nova Lux Royalties, Heritage Mineral Honigs, and Heritage Non-Op Resources. After doing his initial episode in May of 2020, Chris returned to the podcast to talk about his team's expanded platform in both non-op and royalties, going from just the Powder River Basin into Appalachia, the Scoop Stack, and the Permian. Throughout the episode, Chris and I get into the weeds on the macro picture for natural gas and LNG, and how his thesis is underpinning his team's long-term natural gas investment strategy. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Chris had to say. Well, Chris, uh, good to see you again. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been quite a while. Two and a half years or so. Yeah. And the world's changed a lot. Uh, Oil and gas has changed quite a bit. And your team has evolved quite a bit. So walk us through what you've been up to, in particular, the creation of Flat River Minerals and your team's expansion, both in the non-op and other basins for minerals. I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, probably didn't cover this originally, but Flat River Minerals, we formed in 2019 with our partner, EMG, the Energy Minerals Group. And business thesis of the company was basically to invest in upstream resources, um, whether it's operated or whether it's minerals and royalties, and basically, you know, run and hold for life economics. So that means, you know, as a private equity company, we had to hit our uh, 18 to 20% internal return goals, you know, on a run out basis. So that means from a mineral standpoint, royalty standpoint, we had to be really good or, or actually get really good at investing about 36 months ahead of the drill bit. So we, we had to be able to invest where there wasn't really a line of sight through permitting or anything like that. So it really fell down upon us understanding what it took an oil and gas company to develop a natural resource and just get ahead of them with what basically looking at it and saying, how would I develop it if I was them? And then just follow our map and hopefully we were right and they would follow the same path. So yeah, 2019 Flat River Minerals, you know, EMG had just closed $1.6 billion fund, their fifth fund. So we had a lot of dry powder, basically uh, an open checkbook to figure out how to create some value. So real quick, Chris, a lot of folks will tap themselves on thinking and acting like an EMP company. You said something the other day in a private conversation we had. You, know, you said, I've operated fields for my whole career. So when I get comfortable with the rock, I can look at something and I say, I've been in that boardroom. They're most likely to land the well here. I don't know why and when. And it's just almost, it seemed like a gut feel and an instinct just from experience. And I think you can go rely on data and a lot of other signals in the market, which I'm sure you all do very, very well. But can you talk about that operating background and really how that ties into just, you're not trying to figure it out, you kind of know it, and you're just applying that operator instinct to minerals, no? It's a really good question. I really wouldn't call it an instinct. It's just, you know, you get good at something by repeating it and practicing it over and over and over again. And when you um, have the opportunity to do that, you know, quite honestly, in my case, all over the world, you get to see a lot of different things. 
and you say, oh yeah, I've been in this situation before, or I've seen people in this situation before, and this is what they did to get out of it. Or this is the most efficient way to develop this type of difficulties that you're being faced with on the surface. You know, whether it's uh, where to lay your pipeline so you don't have pigging and liquid holdup issues to where you're, uh, you know, get the easiest access into actually, you know, developing a field. So just looking at things from that perspective, you know, gives you the ability to take a big step back and look at what the operators are doing, look at the type of cash flow they have, and what can they do with that cash flow? So I think that's really probably a really good point. Our industry is operating within cash flow. So you look at a particular basin and you say, whether it's EOG or whoever, are they really going to be stealing or moving cash, competing for capital outside of their basin? Or are they going to really develop that basin based on the cash flow that they're achieving within it? Then all of a sudden, if you land on the, the answer that they're going to use just the internal cash flow from the Powder River Basin, then you know exactly how many rigs they could run with that cash flow. Then if they're running that many rigs, whether or not they're giving that guidance or not, they pretty much tend to you know, be running 60, 70% of the cash flow. That's the number of rigs they're running. And whether it's Devon or whether it's EOG or, you know, or anybody else, they're, they're really within those ratios. And then one other thing, and we'll kind of progress in the conversation. You mentioned the thesis around hold for life, uh, returning capital to your investors through cash flow. You know, that is a very family office-like mentality. You don't see that in private equity. I think you're a unique breed in that. And I think EMG is a unique private equity partner that they think the same. You, you always tell me, Tim, we, we hit our hurdle rates through the stock tank, not through flipping. Do you just want to mitigate and remove risk of timing in the market and selling at the right time? And you prefer to just go with the hope for life? Of course, right price, you sell. And I'm sure you've recycled plenty of assets over the years, but because this is going to come up later in the conversation. So to explain that thesis. I don't think there's anybody out there that can predict oil and gas price. There's always a black swan event. (laughs) It's volatile as hell, and it's only going to get more so as we're into this energy transition, however you want to couch that or define that. And so that means that in a worst case scenario, you know, you're going to, you're not going to get to sell it in a high price environment. You're going to make most of your money through the average environment. What is that going to look like? God forbid you're forced to sell in a low price environment, but the best you could do is hit average. And that means when you're running economics of whether or not I should make this equity investment, how would this look like if I was forced to produce it out from cradle to grave? That's what you should be making that decision upon, in my view anyway. And that's exactly how um, EMG looks at it as well. All right. So now let's dig into flat over minerals and where y'all are at. You and where have become well known in the mineral space the last three, four years of, as y'all have dug in. And most folks would think of you as PRV players. And You've recently expanded in other basins. We'll get into those other basins in a little bit, but let's start with the PRB, where you're at today, why you like the powder. I would say in my role, talking to a lot of stakeholders in the industry, there was a little bit of a rush up to the powder some years ago. And then folks that play the Intel game and trying to flip stuff, they're like, man, powder's tough. And there's millions of acres. And so... They retreated, right? And they yeah. The rush back. to the powder, the rush to the powder happened. Depending on who you were, or where you were, whether operator, mineral, whatever, is really 2012, 
316 and that got really quiet. Mm-hmm. And there's some people like Peak that tried to exit as operators, couldn't do it, not, not at a price they were looking for. But the bottom line is, is we love the rock in the Powder River Basin. It's a mix of sandstones and true shell, you know, shell plays. The sandstones that have really played out and been started really been developed. Some of what's being developed with horizontal wells 20 years ago it was the Parkman, the Teapot, Turner, the Sussex, the Shannon. But you've got two true shale plays, which is the Nio and the Maori, and, and they're both real. Now, the powder is about 9 million acres. Quite honestly, we're interested in about 500,000 of those. Sure. It's not an easy place to play. One time, there was 47,000 permits that were active in the powder. And there's still, I don't know, 35, 38,000 permits. But again, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to go up there. But the number one reason is just the rock. It really is fantastic rock. Um, it's complex. You got to know where, where to play it. And it's both complex, not only stratigraphically, but from a uh, structural standpoint as well. But if you understand it, there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity. And you see companies up there just making some fantastic wells. The yeah. first company we formed underneath the flat river, Tim, was Rock and WW. So Rock and WW Minerals was really formed to focus primarily on the powder, Wyoming in general, but powder in particular. And we've been playing around the Wyoming sandbox for a decade now. And we love it up there and decided in 2019 also to move our headquarters to Sheridan, Wyoming, which is basically the northern end of the powder, which really gave us a parochial neighborhood environment to do business from. And and, um, that's worked out really well for us. What a lot of people don't understand, or we really haven't advertised it at all, but we also form Flat River Resources, which is the company that we hold our working interest investments in. And again, primarily, that's all right up in the powder right now as well. Is that not up or operated or a mix? It could be both, but uh, right now it just holds non-operated working interests. Okay. Uh, We really just, I think, Tim, over the last two and a half years, we've probably submitted over $2 billion worth of bids to try to pull down an operated project. We've just been unsuccessful. You know, and here recently, really in 2021, we started focusing on uh, creating a a long-term gas investment strategy. We're finally pulling that together. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But, you know, in the powder and and rock and WW, we own interest in about 700 producing wells now. Another 3,500 of true PUDs that'll end up getting drilled over the next uh, seven to 10 years. You know, and our production has actually year over year been increasing about 45% per year. So we're on the we're on the right track up there. We've been cash flowing for that company's been cash flowing for over a year at about a 25% yield. So at this point, we're still just reinvesting 100 percent of our cash flow, but we'll actually start distributions within a year or so. Great. Just one sound, but I always think is impressive. How many rigs? are running in the powder and and the percentage of activity that is on Rock and WW minerals, right? Yeah, I think right now we're up to 16 or 17 rigs running in the powder. And for the past two years running, um, we've averaged ownership between 60 and 70% of the total number of wells drilled. So if 200 wells were drilled, you know, we actually owned interest in 65% of those. Yeah, well, not bad <laughs> in terms of 
buying ahead of Joe bit and, and landing on those predictions. So well done. What I find really interesting and exciting is what you've done now over the last couple of years. So again, most folks will think of you and Wit, Sheridan Base, PRB only. You all now have a pretty robust portfolio in Appalachia, um, a small bit in the Permian in the scoop stack. And it's scale. It's not just, hey, we're thinking of expanding there. We started ground game. You have a significant portfolio. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, in 2021, we put together a long-term gas strategy and either on an operated or a minerals basis. And um, you know, we well over a billion dollars worth of bids um, on an, just trying to take down operating fields that we felt was world-class rock. We were unsuccessful in that, and we shifted a little bit and focused that long-term gas strategy to a minerals and royalty perspective really similar to, to Rock and WW. And in that process, we started talking to, uh, we came up with a strategy that basically provided us with a lower cost of capital working with EMG. You know, as, as those discussions progressed, then we decided with EMG, of course, you know, to take over uh, their old American energy partners, minerals and royalties, as well as non-op working interest companies. Basically, we're six different companies known as, uh, you can kind of roll them all up into two halves. One of them was Heritage Non-Op Resources, and the other was Heritage Mineral Holdings. These companies owned a portfolio of about 3,300 PDP wells in Appalachia, uh, the scoop stack, you know, and primarily in Reagan County, the Midland Basin. And they've got about the same number of uh, undrilled locations as well. And so we went ahead and in 2022 actually took control of those companies and integrated them into the Flat River Minerals uh, family and, and management structure, you know, and um, we're really excited about what we could do with those. You know, if you looked at it from a MCFE basis, it's about 72, 73 million cubic feet per day of gas. From an oil perspective, it's about 12,000 barrels of oil equivalent net to the company. Yeah, Aubrey McClendon, who, who built that portfolio under American Energy Partners, clearly a pioneer, did a, a lot of things with the industry, but there's, I think, on his way out and, and sadly his passing, there was some colorful stories, right, and some different perceptions on him. Can you talk about you're a rock guy, right? You love quality rock and being in good positions. What does that portfolio look like? I mean, you inherited it. You didn't build it. All, all in all, like, like you said, there's a lot of colorful stories about Albie McClendon. But I can tell you this, with the companies that we're involved with here, you know, they've distributed actually to their shareholders over the last eight years, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. They have very little debt, about uh, 0.3 debt to EBITDA ratio. And production has been maintained flat. He's bought in fantastic rock. And it's rock that's continually being drilled by the very large independents like, you know, Continental and Devon and Antero and Ascent, another one of the American Energy Partners companies, as well as uh, EQT and companies like that. So really, really solid um, asset base with flat production profiles. The companies have uh, literally a couple hundred wells a year being drilled. I knew what heritage was before it was essentially being harvested. There was no proactive additional acquisitions. And so the fact that there was flat production, I think says something about the quality of the asset base that it was left alone and it stayed. Right. And I think that's really what you try to achieve with a minerals portfolio is Scott Noble talks about it all the time. 
reserve replacement and keeping production flat. If you can achieve that long-term minerals and royalties as a large diversified portfolio, it's hard to beat that as a, from an investment standpoint, right? Yeah, you've got to be in the core rock under operators that actually have have a sustainable drilling program. That means they're making money in the down years as well as the up years. And that rig count's going to stay pretty consistent and they're just going to keep drilling those wells. And luckily enough, these companies uh, were bought in the right rock. And that, that wasn't luck. That was McClendon and his team knew exactly what they were doing when they uh, purchased in this rock. You know, Ascent Back East is a perfect example of, of a company that's set up in just fantastic rock, a great Utica position in particular. The company's going to do, is doing really well and is going to continue to do really well. Interesting spot. So you've got this large portfolio. You have several basins, very natural gas heavy, and you have a large concentration of well wars. So it's really fun for me. You know, we, we get together for breakfast a couple of years ago, right? And you talked to me about this vision of creating this yield driven vehicle for your minerals portfolio. And this was right before you took over the American Energy Partners heritage portfolios, right? But you had this vision and today that vision has been implemented, which is great to see. So that was really back in 2021, the, the spring of 2021, when we came up with and started working on our, our natural gas, mineral and royalty investment strategy. You know, that I talked about earlier, you know, it kind of shifted to that. We made a hard play to try to just capture our operated assets, you know, on the natural gas side. And by the summer, uh, let's just say September of 2021, we kind of put ourselves in a position where, you know what, we're going to have a much better chance of getting the rock that we want through a minerals and royalty strategy. You know, we said, okay, let's start looking at these gas basins, primarily the Haynesville and Appalachia, and let's start trying to figure out what a strategy looks like. And we realized right away that obviously we needed a much lower cost of capital than the typical private equity source if we were going to play in those basins using run out economics. And so we started, took a step back and started thinking about how we could find that lower source or lower cost capital and, and what it would look like going forward and how to put ourselves in a much more competitive position to be able to acquire, you know, heavy PDP type assets and, and natural gas. And what we um, started looking for was um, money to stand beside ourselves from overseas. Kind of a, you know, you've heard a lot, you know, a lot of companies that put together drill codes, et cetera, et cetera. But in essence, what we wanted to do is put together a long-term yield company that would be focused on delivering distributions from day one in the 10 to 12% range, average over the life of the entire company slash asset base. Basically, you're investing in an annuity that's going to be giving you 10 to 12% of your equity back every single year. We were lucky enough to uh find a partner in Europe and actually end up being probably end up, end up being a couple partners in Europe to pull together a joint venture to invest in natural gas royalties in the US here. And the name of the company we formed is Novalux Royalties. That's going to actually be holding the assets. And we hope to grow that uh, considerably over the next decade or two. The company uh, actually, we're hoping to close our first acquisition which is $20 million. And it's actually dropped down, you know, an acquisition of royalties from one of our heritage companies 
you know, in our Appalachian portfolio. Basically, we're eating our own cooking there, Tim. And so um, I guess there's no better endorsement that we believe in this company on a long-term basis if we're willing to actually invest alongside our European partners. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. If you're looking for international partners, I think one of the challenges for international players is you're over there, you're the specialist. I'm over in international world and I'm a generalist. How do I know we're aligned? And one way to be aligned is to say, I'm driving the car right with you, right? We're in this together for the long term. And I think I think that's super important um, versus just trying to sell it and exit it full out. Because we've seen a lot of players, especially, do you remember the, this is going, this is not royalties, but this is probably a decade ago when all the NOCs and the Asian money came in in a big way, particularly in Canada, but there was a handful of deals in the US as well. And a lot of these ended up destroying capital. They, they really got fleeced in a lot of ways. So there's that track record. And so how do you overcome that? And I think that's alignment. And, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the history of foreign companies getting involved in the lower 48, whether it's through majors or large independents, it hasn't really worked out very well for those foreign companies. And it didn't matter if you were Statoil, now Equinor, or if you were a Japanese trading house. Both got a bad deal. <laughs> and it didn't matter how much expertise you had internally. At the end of the day, um, I think every one of those companies in hindsight, wishes they did not make those investments. And we're looking, I think the way that we've structured this and how we're doing it, you know, we're, uh, we'll break the mold on that. And, you know, it's going to turn out really, really well for them and for us. 
So underpinning all of this, you've mentioned a few times, 2021, we started a long-term natural gas strategy. This is not you being reactive to eight, nine dollar gas. This is well thought out. There's a macro view and strategy that you guys are taking here. Um, and those who know you well, Chris, know you're you're a thoughtful guy. Um, and I'm really excited to go to this segment of the episode because you have a lot to say on this stuff with a, a great level of detail. It's fascinating. So here's my first question over to you. Uh, we're we're going to talk all things natural gas right now, basins, LNG, markets, infrastructure. But why does your team believe $4 in MCF is something that can be supported long-term, maybe a floor of three bucks, but what's your thesis there? Why do you believe that? Yeah, I think there's five fundamental truths of where you can make an argument that you're looking at between $4 and $3 gas long-term. One of them is, is that gas, you know, is physically the lowest cost or form of energy available on a global basis, especially when you take into the full cycle cost of ESG. And therefore, the, the world has a huge economic incentive to use it as the base of their energy pyramid, regardless of what country you're in. The second truth is that natural gas is now decoupled from oil on a global basis. America and our recent pool position in the LNG export market you know, is the perfect example of this. You've got 18, more than 18 TCF a year of LNG, you know, that's being bought and sold. 35% of the total LNG of that 18 TCF is in the spot market. That's pretty amazing. And that's just been over the last really six to eight years that that's come about. I think the key point here, again, fundamental truth number two, is that a huge spot market has been developed. Okay, and there's a lot of ramifications of that. The third line of truth is that the U.S.'s export capacity, we're not only the ones who really truly created that spot market, because we have a line of sight that our LNG export is going to continue to grow. That kind of ensures that natural gas in the lower 48 here in the U.S. is also will continue to be decoupled from oil which is really, really important. Basically, oil price drilling activity is not going to affect natural gas price the way it used to because growth in gas export will trump that. We'll be able to maintain a solid gas price because our export is growing. That, that's a key, key point. The fourth fundamental truth, and this is where the $4 gas comes in, 3 to $4 gas, is that in normal times, forget about the Ukrainian war and energy crisis that they're going through right now. We can talk about that later. But in normal times, from the U.S., we could deliver an MMBTU of gas to a gas fire electrical plant in Germany, you know, for nine bucks an MMBTU. And basically, that is very, very competitive on a global basis. That's competing with Qatar and Australia. You know, how do you break the nine bucks down for, you know, it's a cost of gas, say four bucks plus a 15% surcharge to, to actually acquire it and have it delivered to the, to the liquefaction, you know, export facility. You know, you have a liquefaction physical cost or throughput charge of another three bucks. You got transport of a buck and then you got regasification on the other side into the system for another 50 cents. You know, you, you add all that up, you know, when you're sitting at nine bucks. Now, 
four dollar gas, i.e., four fifty delivered to the tail or the inlet of a of a liquefaction plant. That's an attractive price for EMP operators. Gasket, you know, we're going to make good money as an EMP operator with four dollar gas for a long, long time. Right? There's lots of rev- reservoirs that come into play at four dollar gas. You know, but if gas price continues or stays much higher than that, then all of a sudden our natural gas or our, our LNG on the global market is not quite as competitive any longer with Qatar or Australia or some of these other big players. And and by default, since much of our throughput is spot market, it could be turned down. I mean, people just aren't going to be buying it. So you're going to see less throughput. Interesting. You know? And so because it's a commodity on a global basis now decoupled from oil, and you've got this 35 plus percent and growing sector of the spot market, that's really going to set the floor for natural gas as long as it keeps growing. The fifth fundamental truth, if you will, is that these renewable energy projects, regardless of government incentives, there's no way that they're going to be installed. And I'm talking globally here. There's no way that they're going to be installed, you know, at the forecasted pace that either, you know, the EIA or the IEA have forecasted. It's it's just impossible. Physically, no way that kind of capital can get deployed in that time frame on a global basis and come online with when they're when they're thinking it's going to happen. And we don't have to get into you know, rare earth metals and not enough resources. You don't have to talk about any of that. The, the bottom line is, is that the world just doesn't, doesn't deploy capital that efficiently. Let me give you a great example of that. If you look at energy sources like coal and hydro, oil and gas, um, nuclear, it's taken on average about 95 years for any one of those types of energy sources to supply 10,000 terawatts of energy into a country or a region's grid, 10,000 terawatts, right? The world uses right now about 175,000 terawatt hours. Basically, these forecasting agencies, whether it's you know the EIA or the IAEA, they're both saying that solar and wind are going to get to that 10,000 terawatt benchmark within 26 years. So, you know, basically three times faster, more than three times faster than any other energy source, regardless of economics, have ever been able to do. And this says, yeah, you had to find oil and gas or you had to mine coal, but it was all over the place. Rare earth metals are not, <laughs> you know, and to deliver these other energy sources and really make them work, you know, you've got to solve those equations. And, and it's just, in my mind, it's impossible to think that the world can allocate capital three times, 300% more efficiently than it's ever done in the history of, in the recent history of providing energy global basis. You know, I don't know if you ever read, uh, have you ever read Mark Mills and some of the work that he's done? You've, you've mentioned him in our calls. Yeah. I, think the guy's, I think the guy's fantastic, you know, and he's really, really entertaining, you know, to, to listen to. But I'll paraphrase him. And that, you know, when he's talking about these renewable growth forecasts, you know, basically he termed the phrase, it's an exercise in magical thinking. There's, there's just no way this is going to happen. And so don't argue with people about it. Just tell them, you go girls, you know, make it happen. But it's not going to happen. <laughs> 
So let's get focused on on what will happen. And I think LNG is the is the big winner there. One thing I found really interesting in our conversations is your insight around the natural gas markets, coal, and what China's doing. So when you look at ESG as really a Western initiative and these goals being a Western initiative, but it to be achieved has to be a global initiative. Talk to me about what China's doing with natural gas and their increase in coal production and how from an emissions reduction standpoint, like that that is a factor that's going, they're going the other way. And that that's just fascinating. But over to you to really draw that out in more detail. We read this every day in the news, right? From the West perspective, these ESG goals and climate change and the focus that we have on it, to a certain extent, it's almost a religious perspective. What I mean by a religious perspective is, is that our, our left side of the equation is so fervent um, about this topic that they don't listen to anybody else. And, and I'm not talking about us in our industry or any practical engineer saying what you can and can't do. I'm not, I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about any of those subjects or, or, or those perspectives. I'm talking about other countries. And so when you look at China or India and you see what's happening in the global marketplace today, it's just underscoring again the fact that, that these countries really have no incentive no desire and is really just a negotiating point with respect to any discussion they have with our governments from an ESG or a global warming perspective, emissions perspective. And, you know, you look at, um, we've got an energy crisis going on in Europe right now. LNG is selling for $45 and $50 in MMBTU. Even at the $6 gas, we're delivering it at the tailgate, free on board at Chenier or one of our other export facilities for something closer to say seven, eight bucks right now, that doesn't include transport or regasification, just FOB, basically just a fraction of what is being sold for in Europe. So there's a huge arbitrage value. We've got long-term supply agreements, some of our companies do with China. They take LNG shipments all the time. They're actually diverting those shipments and sending them to Europe to sell them for the arbitrage margin between what their long-term supply agreements are for and what they can sell them in Europe for right now. They're not doing it to help out Europe. They're doing it strictly for the cash. (laughs) And in turn, they basically are shutting down and dialing back their gas-fired plants and just building more and more and more or ramping up to full capacity their coal-fired plants. Um, Another great example would be, what was it, just a month ago, Um, With Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, one of the things, one of the ramifications from that that didn't get a lot of press time was basically said that ESG and emissions discussions are now off the table with the United States and the West until we recognize that they can walk in and take over Taiwan anytime they'd like. These are the objectives of these countries. Now, the moral of the story, I'm not telling anybody anything they probably don't already know. I think what's important is that we at some point have to understand that if we really want China or India to get off of coal and reduce their emissions, then we have to make natural gas far more economic for them. So they have a monetary and economic justification to move that direction. And the only way that we could do that is through LNG. There really is no other way that we can do that within the next 10 to 20 to 30 years other than LNG. 
And so from an environmental standpoint, if that's our goals, we should be focused on that. So I say this from a neutral perspective. I just say it as an interesting anecdote. Isn't it ironic that a political party's ambitions to help the world, per se, with reducing emissions, that very policy and way of thinking is being used against us with the largest energy consuming growing countries in the world as a political chip for other things that are in their agenda. I just, that's, that's wild. And it's happening every day. Yeah. Yeah. On lots of different subjects and you can get lost in it. But I think the most important point is, is that at the end of the day, the simplest solution is usually the right one. That term is called Occam's razor. And if you apply Occam's razor, the world really has nowhere to go, no simple way to go if they have ESG concerns in mind than LNG. So really great overview there. And so you underpinned all those fundamental truths with this isn't a normal, or, or as, as you would call it when you're building your businesses, an average type outcome, right? But we're not in an average or a normal time right now. There, there's a, a couple of significant black swan events that have happened that affected natural gas. You talk about COVID and then the Ukraine-Russia war, which forget the humanitarian aspect, the impacts on global supply chain and geopolitical considerations around the economy is pretty substantial. From a natural gas perspective, what is what do you think the short and long-term implications are of this Ukraine-Russia war and how it's as you said the other day to me, this story is still being written, but where do you think we're at in that story? And what was what your take? Um, you talk about short and long term. I think, you know, right now, everybody is starting to have the discussions about energy security like they've never really had them before. You know, probably since, not the, since the 1970s, early 80s. When everyone's looking at it from that perspective, all of a sudden, access to energy really becomes the primary concern. And then if you don't have enough of it, what are you going to do with it? You're rationing it. That's what's going on in Europe right now. European countries, you know, the EU as a whole are having to decide, do I use natural gas for creating electricity? Do I put it in storage and use it for this winter when I may not get any or need it with a cold spell that comes through and weather-related crises? Or do I continue to make fertilizer and they're trying to, to, for example, just, just balance that. And so they're forecasting that Europe, who is not a major fertilizer producer, but they're looking at a 25% drop you know, in their own manufacturer fertilizer, which probably has means that there's a 5% shortage you know, on a global basis. And that means the price is going to go up and people are going to be competing for that. And as a result, they're predicting that many developing countries will actually physically be dealing with famine a year from now, because if they don't have enough fertilizer, their crop yields will, will be five times less than what they would have been. You know? And so you, you look at the ripple effect that runs through across the world. Um, it, it's pretty dramatic. And that's just one subject. There's a hundred of them. Yeah, there's in the supply chain, it goes on and there, on. There's a hundred of them. You know, that's just one one subject. So where these geopolitical, you know, energy supply lines get redrawn as the dust settles, who, who really knows? But I think that LNG is going to come out on top 
especially from an energy security standpoint, because one, it's a spot market, it's a free market, you know, so anybody can grab it or pay for it across the globe. As that continues to grow, that's going to provide people with more choices of supply, not just through the U.S., but but Canada. I mean, but uh, well, Canada is trying to put some online as well. But but Australia is a big big player, right? From a security standpoint, you know, you, these are thousands of ships ultimately that'll be on the ocean, and many many different gasification plants, regasification plants that they're landing and 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 exporting to. It's it's not like the Nord Stream pipelines that you can blow up with a few fishing trawlers in a submarine or two. There's just a lot more security involved with LNG delivery because there's a lot more variance or variability in who you get it from than uh, you know than a, a long run pipeline, especially when you can't defend. Why explain to me kind of fundamentally why the spot price market is growing? Is that volatility in the market and folks not wanting to to lock in off-take agreements for too long because that may expose them to unnecessarily high pricing is it the energy mix they feel like they they don't know where it's going to land in the next 20 years so they don't want to lock themselves into gas i mean what what are the drivers of that spot market growing lng has been around forever i say forever 50 years right uh, it was prob- primarily going on in asia and it was primarily an equity model where you had major oil and gas companies making huge gas discoveries that basically had no market. We're in the middle of nowhere. The Arun gas field in Sumatra, ExxonMobil. So they created long-term supply agreements with Japan and South Korea and Taiwan to deliver the energy to them in the form of LNG. Now, they were supplementing crude oil, heating oil which is what they used historically to create electricity in those countries and fuel those industries. And so gas was coupled completely in sync with the price of crude. Japan's uh, crude cocktail, the JCC, perfect example of that. Okay, You paid for gas based on the uh, the BTU equivalent of the crude oil that they normally were export or importing. So the world was set up with LNG coupled to oil, and it, it, it worked that way for through the 70s, 80s, 90s. And around 2003, you started seeing the use of LNG in a much larger way in Europe. And that's when we started the introduction of the spot market. Now, back then, it was still mostly long-term supply agreements. We're talking 20, 30-year agreements, Tim, okay, that were benchmarked on crude oil. You know, back in 2000 and early 2000s, 2003, 2004, you know, you had three, four percent, five percent of the LNG market that was a spot price. Now, a spot price in LNG isn't like a spot price of natural gas at Henry Hub. Okay, a spot price with LNG is like a minimum two-year contract. <laughs> so you're not talking about I'm going to buy you know one shipment of LNG. You know, you, you're, you're, I'm buying two years worth of LNG, right? Under, under contractual agreement. That's a spot market. Now, you know, can buy, people buy individual, you know, loads, cargoes, et cetera, et cetera, sure. But, but you basically have to buy one whole cargo. And those are, those are through companies like long-term LNG trading companies, whether it's BP Energy or Shell or whoever, right? And they own these LNG shipments and they decide where they're gonna go, whether they're going to their own facilities, Equinor out of Norway, 
you know, they trade on their LNG, a portion of their LNG on the spot market as well. Same thing. These are vertically integrated oil and gas energy companies, energy companies. Um, but as the spot market started to develop in Europe, you know, all of a sudden, the equivalent of Henry Hub in Europe is on mainland, it's in Holland, it's called the TTF, the Tidal Transfer Facility, the neutral balancing point, you know, in the UK. They're kind of like the two Henry Hubs. Sure. These started trading based on gas price because this LNG was competing with Norwegian piped gas, local gas, whether it's the you know, huge fields offshore Holland, you know, or whether, um, whether it's Russian gas that's coming across. And so all of a sudden, LNG started being sold on a, you know, on, on a gas basis in, in Europe. Over the last 20 years, especially the last six, seven years, that's grown dramatically because of the U.S. We have basically gone from zero to 100 miles an hour, turning on 12, 12.4 BCF a day of export capacity out of the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. That's pretty phenomenal. We've gone from zero to the number one world supplier of LNG. And as a result, that spot market has grown to 35% of the LNG traded. And we've got a direct line of sight for another three facilities, another six BCF per day of export capability coming online between now and, and 2025. You know, and so that's going to put us in that 18 to 19 BCF a day mark. And our market, our gas market has really priced that in already. You know, the $4 gas that you could hedge at in 2025 is because everyone believes that those facilities will be online and will have that export capacity to take the gas. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts. 
where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. That was going to be one of my questions. You know, when these facilities come online, you're going to see a big spike, but the markets are efficient and they price those in. Um, you know, 2025 is not the end of the road. You could theoretically say, you know, we have endless supplies of, of cheap natural gas that can be produced right. in the U.S. The LNG export capacity, you know, do you foresee that continuing to expand? I mean, I think the one place, the one thing you could say about the U.S. is how quickly they can build and approve and bring new facilities online relative to the rest of the world. That's why we've been able to to go to number one in the world in such a short period of time. Can you give a, some timelines and, and break that down with more specifics, just comparatively what it is for another country? Let, let's just say Europe, right? And Europe's a lot of developed economies, but if Europe wants to today, they go, oh shit, you know, we're really vulnerable right now. We want to build um, new new facilities and in our countries to, to import um, and maybe import and export. I don't know if there's... No, they're, they're two different things. Yeah, they're two different yeah, things. A, a regasification plant is half the cost or less and is, is much quicker. And actually, you know, they're they're building and designing floating regasification plants, so you don't even need to worry about land permitting. And, and quite honestly, we're doing the same thing on the exportation side to, to eliminate the requirement to actually have to have all the issues with building facility on land. Let's come back to your your question, which is is how quickly we were able to do it and why. And the U.S. is our industry in the U.S., whether it's drilling deep water wells offshore um, and developing deep water fields, whether it's putting in pipelines, you know, um, or drilling and developing fields and, 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 you know, on land here. We do it so much more efficiently than you're able to do overseas for the most part. Half the drilling rigs in the world operate in the United States. One half, a quarter of them in Texas. We have more oil wells drilled in the U.S. and oil pipelines put in place than the rest of the world combined. Practice makes perfect. We're really good at doing this. And, and whether it is a refinery, whether it is a, you know, an LNG liquefaction plant, um, or whatever type of infrastructure. We do it very, very efficiently here. So, you know, the permitting in the U.S., it's very, very difficult, just like it is anywhere in the world. The rest of the world runs into the same type of hurdles, maybe for different reasons, but they have the same type of hurdles. Once you get past the permitting, you know, a final investment decision, an FID stage, it takes about three to four years to put in an LNG facility in Texas or Louisiana, Okay. Anywhere else in the world, you're going to double that time frame. It's going to be six to eight years. Now, if that was a deep water offshore environment or development, it would be exactly the same type of timing. I could show you Kermagee back in the day. From the day they discovered an offshore development in 4,000 foot of water, they had it on the line in less than 40 months with a floating facility. That's pretty efficient. Overseas, that same type of development, it take eight to 10 years. We're very, very efficient as an industry, which typically means we're going to end up overbuilding because we get going and we build so much so quick. 
You know, you look at what we're looking at doing right now, there's another six facilities that have a really good chance between 26 and, you know, 2030 to come online in the U.S., Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. Um, that's an, a minimum of another 10 to 12, 13 BCF a day. So by the end of the decade, we should be, be able to export somewhere between 28 and 30 BCF a day of LNG from this country. That's going to provide that market for our gas to be able to hopefully keep gas price, you know, in that plus or minus 350 to 450 range, $4 gas. And to a certain extent, that's already being priced into the market. One thing, um, you know, when I think about my years uh, in my previous company, I ran Canada. Canada always had challenges getting to tidewater is how they call it, uh, getting the LNG facilities online, getting the, the proper pipelines put in place to get the gas to those LNG facilities. And so Canada was always scrapping and clawing and figuring out a way to increase the margins on your projects. Uh, and it wasn't, it was almost like band-aid solutions. So you have behind gate type solutions and you're consuming your own gas and, you know, power plant conversion, all that. And at the end of the day, it was not needle moving, but for survival, you do whatever you can to stay economic, sure. live another day. So when, when you kind of shifting a little bit, we're talking about infrastructure development from the LNG side. In the interim, when you look at building out the necessary pipelines and, you know, if it's cracker plants in the Northeast or just any other means of moving and consuming that gas, it all pales in comparison to LNG is the punchline now. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on all that? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple different examples I can give you, you know, but basically if you look at the Eastern seaboard, Appalachia, you know, the, the Northeastern states, there's very little coal electrical generation left. It's all been converted to natural gas. Okay. Now, if you look at the, the, what's really left, i.e. coal to gas switching is really the, the Southeast it's Georgia and, and, and those states that are on the, the Southern Eastern seaboard, you know, that still have a lot of coal plants left, you know, and are kind of behind the mark, behind the power curve. They're operating in the red. You know, they're the ones that have real problems. Those utilities have the real problems, but that's really very localized in certain areas, whether you're in West Virginia or, or Tennessee or Kentucky or, or, or Georgia or Alabama. You know, that's, that's where there's still coal to gas yeah. switching to take place. The, the issue is you can't get in the gas. You physically just can't put in the pipeline infrastructure needed because of the permitting issues that they have down there. So where is that going to sort out at the end of the day? It's just going to take time. But you look at Appalachia as a whole, the gas usage, gas demand, you know, is really flat. Um, and of the 34 BCF a day that they produce, about 11 BCF a day has access to, we'll call it the LNG fairway to get to the Gulf Coast. And that's primarily taken up by the bigger players, the Anteros, the Ascents, those companies. And they, they pretty much maxed it out and they keep it maxed out. And so you're looking at Appalachia and you're looking at a very, very flat growth profile, in my opinion, at least for the next, the next 10 years. Now, there's will be a certain point in time where I think people realize that 
it doesn't make any sense not to get these pipelines in place or these to create this greater access, but it's going to be very slow in coming. You're going to have to basically, they're going to have to go through back east what Europe's going through right now, energy crises, in order for them to actually stop trying to fight every single small little jumper pipeline in court. I have a bit of an unfair question because it, it, it's linked to the politics of the world, but do you, and this is kind of wrapping up our kind of macro view in the world and the European energy crisis. Do you think one of your points in here you want to go over is how national security, I think a lot of countries, a lot of sovereigns are realizing how important energy supply is to national security. And then you see the humanitarian aspects of just your example of fertilizer, folks, the famine going across these, these countries. Do you think we get to a place where natural gas is accepted by both sides and is used as a vehicle to better the world? Do you think you're there or do you think it's always into the wind, always with the West? Europe's already there. You know, last month, um, the EU has recognized natural gas as a green energy source that's required, you know, to support, you know, what I call the energy pyramid. You know, they have to have it. And they understand that they have to have it for a long time going forward. We'll get there in the U.S. I think Texas is the perfect example. Everyone knows around the world, Texas says one of the largest oil and gas producers in the world. If it was its own country, it'd be in the top 10. I think it'd be like number five or six. Okay. So, I mean, energy powerhouse. What most people don't understand is Texas is also the number one wind and solar provider in the U.S. as well. They went overboard. Not as bad as California and not as bad as Europe, but they've got their energy mixes wrong. They've got too much solar and too much wind, and they don't have enough natural gas fired anymore. And so when Texas sees, when ERCOT sees its peak demand, you have every natural gas power plant in Texas running flat out at capacity, and then you'll still have rolling brownouts. So Texas understands and realizes Now, getting it implemented is a little more difficult, but they understand that they've got to increase. They have to fix the balance and get more natural gas-fired plants to provide more ability to meet their customers, the public's peak demand. And that balance has to stay intact as more and more solar and wind come online. The Texans will get this all figured out. If there's anybody in our country that functions efficiently from the energy standpoint, it's Texas. They will get it figured out. But I think that's a really, really good example of how a state that is rich in both renewable as well as fossil fuel energy sources, and that they're struggling to get the right balance. You know, and the Texas freeze that happened a couple of years ago, you know, it was a great, you know, highlighter. But, but they were, you know, that, that highlighted this fact, but, but they're in the process of fixing it. It's just going to take another five or six years, probably. You can take the other side, the other bookend of that, and, and think about Massachusetts and Boston, where they still are at the point where they would rather import LNG at $45 and $50 in MMBTU than allow a short jumper pipeline from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts to provide them with $4 natural gas from Appalachia, basically cutting their electrical costs by 10. That's unsustainable. Those are the things that need to get fixed. 
But because of the religious perspective of the far left in places like Massachusetts, it's going to take more time. Will they get there? Absolutely. Because, not because, but I believe that Europe realizing where they needed to be on natural gas, you know, it, it took a Ukrainian war to make it happen. But these are, this is a sustainable, it's sticky. It, the use of natural gas as a green fuel in Europe is not going to dissipate. You know, it's sticky. It's not going to fall off the wall. It's staying there. It's stuck. You know, and I think you'll see the Eastern Seaboard follow, which will ultimately allow Appalachia, the largest single gas field in the world, you know, it will give them access to our Gulf Coast and the LNG export. I just think it's probably a decade away. Well, let's use that as a transition. So thank you for all that. I I forewarned everyone, um, we we're about to get into the weeds and you have a lot to say. So thank <laughs> you for hearing that. Um, how does it all tie together so, with Novolux royalties? And you mentioned Appalachia. Appalachia is, is very core to your strategy long-term. But let's look at a couple of uh, a red flag is red flags are probably the the wrong way to say it. But if I'm a if I'm a royalties player right now, challenges takeaway capacity, pace of development not ramping up, not getting full value on on your undeveloped minerals, challenging title, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Why why choose Appalachia? I think there's a lot of interesting parallels to why you chose powder and all the dynamics that went into that for rocking WW. So, you know, there, there's no new ideas, right? It's just repurposing all the ideas and strategies. So talk to us about Novolux, how it all ties in uh, over to you. Well, Novolux is a yield vehicle. As I, as I mentioned earlier, our goal here is to provide 10 to 12% distributions on average over a 50 year period of time and organically grow the company through um, continued uh, investment in world-class natural gas fields. So we're, we're hoping to put, internally, we have about $100 million natural gas assets to drop down royalty-wise into Novolux. And we intend to put an, another few hundred million dollars to work in addition to that, to really grow something to scale. And again, this is a yield vehicle where its investors want an average of 10 to 12% returns over a 50 plus year period of time. Run out economics, hold for life. That's how we're making our decisions. That means that you need production assurance. So it means the wells that you invest in have to have a long, long life, a long, long economic life. So you need the right reservoir parameters to make that happen, especially in a shale well with a two or three mile lateral. I mean, it is a plumbing problem, right? You know, and uh, water is the number one issue here. And so you look at the reservoir in Appalachia and you're talking about 10 barrels of water produced for every million cubic foot of gas. These are pretty dry gas. You know, with respect to water content, free water content, pretty damn dry gas, dry reservoirs. So that means that artificial lift, late life, is going to be very efficient, very inexpensive to keep these wells operating economically below 20 MCF a day. And so these wells' lives are going to be out there a long, long, long time. These reservoirs are also going to respond very, very positively to lower pressure gathering systems. You know, the average gathering system in Appalachia is somewhere between 200 and 400 PSI. Gas compressibility is huge. 
you start producing gas to 50 PSI or less, the ability, the, the recovery from a reservoir with a couple hundred PSI, last couple hundred PSI, you know, of pressure differential, it's huge from a recovery standpoint. You know, these are all long-term things in favor making a long-term investment in Appalachia. So rock is the number one thing. The other thing is, is that people out, the operators in Appalachia has figured out the spacing. Look, there's really one bench, depending on where you are. It's developed at 1,200 foot spacing, 11, 1,200 foot spacing. Some of it's even regulated to that perspective, from that perspective. So you don't have people out there thinking that there's going to be 10 wells per DSU, you know, at five or 600 foot spacing. You don't have, everyone accepts, hey, these are going to be developed at plus or minus 1,200 foot. Yeah, so you don't run the risk of, you know, the Anadarko basin reset that happened years ago when operators really screwed up the space. It's not just there. Anadarko, but it's basically everybody, right? But exactly. You, and you don't have people that, that quite honestly don't know any better thinking that they're buying, you know, additional five PUD locations when in reality they got zero. And they're paying for those PUD locations, you know, whether it's a dollar per NMA or whatever basis, right? You know, from a royalty perspective. You know, so you don't have that overvaluation going on. You know, the other thing about Appalachia is, is that everybody fully recognizes, as you pointed out earlier, the takeaway is flat out maxed out. It's at 90, 94%. Yes, there's some zip codes that could grow over the next three or four years, maybe a total of five to 7%, but that's it. And that'll be because of some coal to gas switching or one little jumper line gets put in or, or some other infrastructure project actually found its way through the, the permitting process. But, but there's no real growth. And so you're talking about a, a basin that's going to produce 34 to 35 BCF a day, every day for the next, next decade, probably. Well, that takes 1,030 well bores drilled per year. That's it in the entire basin. That means there's going to be between 50 and 60 rigs running. That's all. And so nobody can really investor in Appalachia cannot rely on a rising tide to lift all boats, even with $9 gas, because there's just nowhere to put it right now. And so that hopefully keeps a lot of the crazy money out of the basin, that the people investing in the basin are doing it because they believe in long-term gas. And as you said earlier in the podcast, we have more gas in this country than we know what to do with. We'll stop using gas before we run out of it just like we're gonna stop using coal before we run out of it as well. And so it's the long-term play. And that means that, you know, when everything balances out at the end of the day, and our only growth market in the US is LNG, and you can't have more than $4 gas to make LNG competitive on a global basis, that means our average price is gonna be between 350 and 450. And depending on the rate of LNG facilities being installed in this country, you know, you can see a floor of three quite easily while you're waiting for more capacity, export capacity to get turned online. We export eight, seven to eight BCF a day to Mexico. Mexico's got a lot of gas. Are we really looking at seeing that eight BCF a day go to 10? Yeah, maybe. Good chance of it. And Waha won't be at a, at a negative buck 50 then. It'll be a negative 50 cents <laughs> or maybe even money with Henry Hope. But the point is, is that you have all the gas in the world sitting in Texas, West Texas in particular, and it's standing first in line to get to Mexico. It's not going to make a difference. We have the supply. 
it's just got to get piped. Yeah, I mean, so it's um, just one big bottleneck we're trying to to get rid of, whether it's back east or whether you know it's coming out of West Texas. So, I mean, it's interesting as as you go and you start to build your natural gas strategy, and you say we want to have a long term yield vehicle. All the things you're describing lend itself very well to a 10 to 12 percent IR yield vehicle, not a growthy type vehicle. Appalachia is just a really good fit, um, and you know, you, you've mentioned to me, you can be extremely competitive on PDP with that yield vehicle, but it doesn't make sense to pay crazy prices for PUDs. And you, you're, you mentioned this already, right? Yeah. You're not going to be dealing with that, those kinds of companies because they, they have to go to other basins to try to chase that aggressive yeah. growth. You're always going to be dealing with some guys, you know, that, have a crazy pricing model. I mean, you know, we just competed against a, a company or two that paid value for PUDs in West Virginia, in the Utica, under the Marcellus at 15,000 foot TBD, where, hey, is it gas charged? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you're talking about 15, $20 million wells, not $7 million wells. So, you know, why would anyone want to fully develop that within the next 10 or 15 years when you have all the gas in the world at 25 cents FND rather than two bucks. Makes no sense, right? Yet there's people out there that are willing to pay that. But I don't think they're going to be around very long. And I think there's far fewer of them in Appalachia today. And there'll be even less of them two years from today. And so this is a long-term strategy. We have not only the staying power, but we have the patience and the discipline. Whether it's our European partners, you know, that, that uh, um, yep, we've got a minimum growth for the company and we can supply that minimum growth just through our own royalty interests in producing wells in Appalachia. We own interests in, you know, about 1,100 wells. So we, we could supply that minimum baseline that we've promised. And then the growth is all on top of that to put more and more and more money to work at the right price, because that's the one thing you cannot fix is what you pay for something. And as a mineral owner, that's the only choice you have. As an operator, there's a lot of things I can fix, you know, or our team can fix, you know, with, with respect to the cost to drill wells, the productivity of completions, you know, where to put the wells, where to develop, where not to develop. You don't have any of those choices as a mineral owner. You only have two choices, what and how much you're willing to pay for it. Uh, obviously, right now, we're talking a lot about LNG. You, you're clearly underpinning your strategy with LNG growth and markets. And short term, Haynesville is going to be the number one supply you know, feedstock for Gulf yeah. Coast. Yeah. We, we love the Haynesville Rock in core Louisiana. Absolutely love it. Fantastic. You know, it's probably uh, the second best rock, you know, with respect to gas reservoir outside of Appalachia. You know, it, it's fantastic. World class. And positioned perfectly, you know, to produce to where all the LNG exportation growth is going to happen. So, so obviously, whoever's got in there early enough, you know, they they position themselves really, really well. And you've just had an enormous amount of people flock, you know, to the Hainesville, um, trying to get their piece of it. And we took a hard look at it, and we just can't compete with the economic models that are people who are running there. You know, they're willing to pay for any potential value 
they don't have a line of sight on it, but they're willing to pay for it, which we could never do. And and then they're hoping and their plan is to flip out of it, you know, within a couple of years. So that model doesn't work for us. We can't buy in high and get out high if we plan on holding it for 50 years, regardless of how good the rock is. We understand supply and demand, you know, on the long run and how much gas this country has, and that there'll be a certain point in time where this LNG exportation will be full and we'll have an oversupply. We'll see gas shift back down to $3 or lower even. Through lack of investment, supply and demand will shift back out to what makes sense long-term. That is LNG competition overseas, you know, which means you have a feedstock supply of plus or minus four bucks. And so if, if, you're, if you have to believe in LNG to make a gas investment using a floor of $3, if you don't believe in LNG, you better be using 250. So, Chris, let's talk a little bit about um, the land and the title side of Appalachia. I think really the reputation of Appalachia from a minerals perspective is it's very difficult. There's a barrier of entry to get into the basin because how tricky the title is and the DSUs are irregular. And for new players, it can be a challenge. Uh, I think what's interesting is there's a lot of a lot of parallels to what you're doing in Appalachia or looking to do an Appalachia that you did in Sheridan. You guys are going to go local, right? You're going to set an office there. And you're very, very good at the grassroots and the powder where a lot of others had challenges. And so in a basin where others historically have had challenges unless they've stuck it out for the long term, like a lot of your peers with large portfolios there, you're not going to have success. So over to you to really break down how Y'all are approaching the land, the title side. Um, this really falls into Whitney Wicks, your partner's uh, camp. This is her bread and butter. Uh, I'll let you uh, expand upon that. Yeah, absolutely. Title and the powder and the Fed, you know, the Fed aspects of it. It's tough. We approached it from a grassroots standpoint. Uh, we've run blanket title up there for uh, well, shoot, well over 600,000 acres by now. Um, it's become its own you know, uh, asset in itself. You know, my partner, Whitney Wicks, uh, helped, you know, she co-founded the company with me. Um, we've worked together before that at Ixaro at our operating companies. She's a real talent and she's just really, really good at figuring out, you know, unique workflows to solve some of these problems. You know, I think, you know, to give credit where credit's due, you know, one of the strategies that Whitney came up with was was actually, hey, let's let's database this thing. You know, let's create a workflow on the land side through um, the use of a customer relation database. We chose Salesforce. But what we had to do was actually develop the software, the I should say the applications on top of Salesforce and integrate in, you know, third-party applications, software as a service type platforms you know, specifically uh, tracks and, and combo curve being two of those that have been extremely supportive to our business effort as well. But basically taking those and, and integrating it into our own proprietary applications on top of Salesforce. Whit not only pioneered this on the land side, but then her and I basically said, what's good for land is good for our entire business process. So we both just jumped in and basically took this thing from soup to nuts 
everywhere from the use of blanket title and running blanket title all the way through the entire process, reserve evaluation, rock evaluation, and how it lays out in the basin. You know, databasing that, the next logical step is the valuation of that. What are we willing to pay for it? Integrating in through a process we call KDIs, key drilling indicators of when it's actually going to get drilled and why. And then actually rolling that through our buying process where we get out there on a grassroots basis and try to acquire minerals. When we do get an acquisition, we run it through the due diligence process. That's again through our applications on top of Salesforce which then leads us to long-term production management. Includes reevaluating what we bought if we're willing to buy more in that same acreage because we typically get the opportunities to do that. And, and value doesn't stay stagnant. As wells get drilled, remaining wells are there undeveloped. The value of those wells go down, not only because of the time value of money, but also reservoir depletion. And we take those depletion models in the reservoir and roll those completely through, you know, our database and Salesforce as well. And so we're looking at taking that type of an integrated model, transition that over to Appalachia. You know, WIT is planning on having her land office up and running in Appalachia, you know, certainly within the next six months. You mentioned that grassroots is going to be a foundational part of your strategy. But you, you guys, given that you're looking to achieve scale, will be looking at consolidated portfolios, market processes. I think the one thing that's interesting about Appalachia is really the lack of large transactions that have happened. And we don't need to beat the dead horse here. I think the takeaway issues, the takeaway capacity issues, the, the flat development, all the things that we've talked about long-term for Appalachia underpin why larger transactions aren't happening because a lot of the transactions tend to be PDP heavier because that's the only thing that will transact. And so just a couple, you know, when you're excluding the large override deals that happen, a lot of them were structured finance and reversionary structures, just removing those and looking at kind of a pure minerals and royalties acquisition. Whitehawk took a chunk of San Jacinto for 50 million bucks and Bandera, um, who's you know, affiliated of Apollo, bought a largely PDP heavy asset from Ridgetop Capital. Outside of that, there hasn't really been any deals that have been done of scale. I'll put you on the hot seat. Why do you think Flat River will have success as a consolidator in Appalachia if others have been challenged to do so? I have all the faith in the world, Chris, that you guys are going to do well on the ground. All the faith in the world. You got... I think anyone listening to this can tell you guys are extremely competent and capable and you have a track record. You're very knowledgeable about the market. So let's, let's put that aside. Looking at being a consolidator in kind of mid-level and upsize portfolios, how do you feel that y'all are going to have success when the market points to it being challenging to do larger deals? That's a really good question. You know, first of all, because we're offering or we're, we, our objective is this 10 to 12% yield. We're looking for PDP heavy properties. Those are a lot easier to come to agreement on to get some common ground of where they should trade, right? For both sides of the table. That's the number one thing. Number two thing is we can afford to pay top dollar for it because we're not using a cost of capital like private equity that's searching for that 18 to 20% return. You know, we're searching for that 12, 10 to 12% return. Um, the next thing is that, and probably the most important thing is we're patient. 
we've created the economies of scale. You know, I think our our GNA runs us about 18 cents in MCFE. So that's literally, Tim, about a third of the cost of, you know, um, a typical mineral company that's out there. We just don't have any um, pressure on us to do deals. You know, we've got the inventory. Um, what we're searching for are the right deals, which means the right reservoir at the right price. And since we're looking at and created a vehicle that we're willing to share with others, we're willing to do innovative deals, whether that means tagging on performance clauses within our PSAs, you know, to where um, if some upside is realized, we'll share it, you know, with, with the seller or even provide the seller the ability to take a combination of cash and interest in Novalux, which means they still are going to get distributions in cash flow from their retained ownership every single month. And they get to expose themselves to different liquidity events in the future through uh, an entity that's a much, much larger scale. And therefore, you know, hopefully we'll end up getting a much, you know, a premium price that they couldn't get at the smaller scale. And, and they're taking a lot of risk out of the equation, you know, with respect to um, production assurance. You know, our production assurance numbers, the way we, you know, when, when we actually make an acquisition, we typically won't make one that's less than 100 wells. So we actually get statistics, probability working in our favor, you know, and to where our production assurance is well above 95%, you know, in that 97, 98% range. You know, at, at the end of the day, then, you know, if you're hedged properly, you're able to have a very, very high, you know, 75, 80% confidence level in delivering that uh, 10 to 12% return, which is pretty phenomenal. You know, our worst case scenarios, you know, disaster scenarios, you know, with respect to sensitivities still has us at a 7% distribution. That's like $2 gas, but long-term. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, Listen, I, I think the punchline is a 10, I mean, you're looking to hold this for 40 or 50 years, potentially. You're taking in the in the interim a 10 plus year perspective on this. And there's not a lot of folks out there at your scale with that perspective. So, you know, you're building a unique animal. Uh, it's exciting to see. And uh, listen, I, I appreciate you coming on. We've become good friends over the years. Appreciate you coming on and sharing this and I look forward to continue to see Flat River and, and Novalux grow. And, you know, hope this helps educate the market on not only how to look at natural gas, but also what y'all are doing. And hopefully there's ways for folks to reach out and partner and look at you guys in a different way. Definitely from historical, which is the powder vehicle, right? So um, over to you for closing comments. But thanks again for coming on, Chris. This has been phenomenal. Well, really appreciate the opportunity and um, not sure how much... Uh... We educated your um, your listeners, Tim, but we certainly gave them a lot of opinions, you know. Yeah, well, uh, people people always, you know, talk to me and go, wow, you know, you're so knowledgeable on the mineral space. I go, well, I'm not really a smart guy. I just talk to smart people all the time. So this is an example. <laughs> so, you need uh, to introduce me to more of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, good stuff, Chris. Thanks again. I'm looking forward to, to seeing you again soon, as always, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. 
Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.